I need to ask you for your forbearance this morning. Uh, some of what I'm going to share with you, I already shared a little bit uh, in some parts. I believe last November, Suzanne was kind enough to remind me of that. Um, and also, no, it was very good. I'm, I'm, I'm very appreciative. I, I forget what I said uh, yesterday, so... And then also those who go to Covenant Seminary's uh, chapel times will also have heard some of it. This is a a meditation, and it is really just sharing uh, from my own life uh, some uh, truths, some passages, some concepts uh, stay with you for a long time. And so I want to share that with you this morning. Uh, Obviously, we're praying for Ron and Uh, It is uh, a a pleasure and a privilege to be able to um, be here this morning and uh, hopefully encourage you uh, along some lines that are very crucial for my life. Uh, You see the first slide, but uh, initially I want to give you a negative example of King um, uh, Jeroboam. And uh, I want to give that to you as an example of someone who builds a kingdom of self, as someone who uh, arranges his life according to his own devices. And so as I read a relatively lengthy section from 1 Kings 12, I'd like you to listen with one ear. Maybe if you're younger, you can count the occasions that uh, Jeroboam takes things into his own hands in his circumstance. So I'm reading from 1 Kings 12, 26 to 33. And Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem... Then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, namely these uh, um, uh, two calves. And he set one in Bethel, and the other one he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests from among the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered, he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed Bethel in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the 8th month, in the month that he had devised from his own heart. 
And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. Verse 33. After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places again from among all the people. And who would he ordained to be priests to the high places? And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. That is the end of this reading from 1 Kings twelve twenty six to 33. I have not counted it myself, but maybe some of you did. How many times there is a reference to he did, he made, he appointed, he devised, he ordered, he instituted, etc.? Uh, it's a very difficult situation that he finds himself in and we are also in difficult situations in our lives. And uh, I see a lot of common ground between this king and myself. Uh, Namely to revert to the default mode of taking things into my own hand. Now this is an extreme example because he basically acts uh, individually and separately from all many of the ways that God had established for the people to conduct themselves in. And I want to contrast this morning this uh, walk of taking things into your own hand with the um, example that the chief king of this universe sets for us in his own conduct whereby he Uh, goes a path of dying surrender, of giving up, of giving himself over into the hand of the Father, diametrically opposed to this king that we just read about. And so uh, here is the first uh, slide and the first topic, namely that of a dying grain of wheat. And uh, I'll just work with you to... Uh, proceed with the slide since my little uh, remote control uh, does not follow my control. Um, uh, Thank you for doing that. Here, uh, Jesus speaks about his own life. The hour has come, he says, for the Son of Man to be glorified. In the Gospel of John, this includes being lifted up and crucified and then to be vindicated. And then Jesus moves from his own life to you and me. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. If you wouldn't mind going to the next slide. Um, And the next one, sorry. Um, This is an illustration of what Jesus is speaking about. And um, 
especially the uh, second one from the left, uh, is cracking open. Now, it is true, if you listened carefully, Jesus does say, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies. He uses a very strong term. Now, I could soften the strong term and say, he doesn't really speak about dying, because if you destroy a seed, you destroy the DNA, you destroy all the information, and no fruit will come of it. And it's true what I just said. Jesus does not mean annihilation. But I still believe that he means exactly what he says. It feels like death to you and me. And that's why this term should not be softened. It is death. But obviously we need to understand, and the, the listeners of Jesus would have understood, it's not the destruction of this seed, of this heart. And so Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and cracks open like death, like, it feels like death, it remains alone. And this statement of it remains alone could be a little bit pedantically translated as it itself will continue to remain alone all by itself. There's the little Greek word autos. And we have the autonomy uh, derived from that autonomos, the law unto ourselves. So autonomy is we are law unto ourselves. The example I read from the king in the Old Testament is, per, is precisely that. He is a law unto himself and he baptizes it in religious activity baptizes in, in uh, quotation marks and in a negative sense. And so what Jesus says here, I, as your king, am going this path. I'm going to literally die. I'm going to take uh, the curse of God upon myself and I will crack open. In just a little bit, we're going to break the bread, and that's precisely that. It's the breaking open. Uh, the, the, the life that needs to come out of not remaining in autonomy, in the self-control. And maybe Germans have a particular disposition towards that, but when under pressure, when in difficulty, when under much uh, demand, uh, the default mode is, okay, now I need to take over. I need to take over the reins. I can pray, I can trust God when things are kind of cruising along, but when things count, uh, when I have a major exam, when I have to prove myself in school, when I have to uh, have my job interview, definitely I need to take things into my own control. So I would say Jesus goes way beyond uh, uh, Judaism of its day, he goes to human nature. And he, like a self-guided missile, goes to the very core of our being, of our default mode. How do we operate when pressed? And uh, I have to admit to you, I revert back to self-defense, to autonomy, to doing it myself. 
And it seems like in God's mercy, he is increasing, increasing, increasing the pressure, the, the, the demand, the circumstances. So I have no hope of managing. And so uh, to, to uh, say, Lord, you take it. But obviously you see here in this example, it's an encouragement to you and me. We are not meant to be living in the misery of annihilation. We are meant to live in the fruit that grows out of this death-like cracking open. So the goal is life and fruit. It's not misery and nothingness. But it is so hard that we will not choose this path ourselves. Our master has, go, has to go before us, and the two other metaphors that we're going to look at in just a minute um, are exactly given to us so that we will learn to take the harness that God puts on us and to collaborate, cooperate, surrender, and give ourselves to that so that we might learn what it means to be a seed that does not stay in autonomy, but that breaks open. If you wouldn't mind going back to the preceding uh, one, this is a very haunting quote from C.S. Lewis. You all know it, but I'm applying it to this particular question, and I'm just going to read it. It indicts me all over. To love it all is to be vulnerable, C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. And in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. So this is a stark uh, warning and challenge uh, that encourages us to follow Christ into this uh, uh, process of the dying seed. If you wouldn't mind going to the, the seed again, I am wondering whether all of our lives, I don't know about you, but in mine, whether I'm in all of these stages in some area of my life. Some of it, there is a little bit of fruit growing in other areas. I'm tenaciously holding on like a dog to a, to a chewed up bone. So uh, we, may, we may not be statically looking at our lives, but we may say, in what area uh, are we at a, at a different stage in this uh, process? And just for encouragement, uh, if you can then skip the... Uh, yes, wow, perfect. You're with the program. Thank you so much. Um, this is an encouragement for those of you who feel that maybe uh, you're supposed to bear huge fruit. And I just want to tell you, one apple is enough. <laughs> one root, one apple. So don't, don't neutralize yourself by uh, not going for the big thing. Um, 
some famous person once said, I can't stand perfectionists because they only achieve 50%. They either go for 100% or nothing. The average is 50. I want to go for 75%. So uh, talk to yourself, who you are, what approach you have. And the point is not 20 apples. The point is fruit. So don't neutralize yourself and uh, the challenge, obviously, is to, to be willing to go through that process. If you wouldn't mind going to the next picture, this is a picture of Rembrandt. And we could linger here. Uh, this is a man who is living in utter darkness. He is autonomous. He is living in his own place. And the only source of light is the candle that uh, gives, sheds enough light on his possessions, on what he has accumulated. These are all books of his accounts. And he is dead, he is in the dark, and he doesn't realize it. There is a sense of, a very minute sense of satisfaction on his face, but it's not surrendered joy. If you wouldn't mind going to the next picture, this is the struggle of Jacob wrestling with the angel of the Lord. And I just want to say that to myself, maybe because it's such a difficulty. To surrender to God is a battle. So if you think you just need to be willing, and then you will go that path of a seed dying in the ground, maybe you need to think again. Uh, it's really uh, like a dog that you want to make that dog drop the ball so you can throw it again. And how often have I seen the dog completely catatonically frozen with holding on to the ball? Because there are these two hugely conflicting instincts of I've got the ball and I'm not going to give it away and I would like the joy of going after another one. So uh, if you apply that to your life, uh, then you will have to say, Lord, orchestrate your choice of circumstances in which I'm going to be between a rock and a hard place. I'm going to scream. I'm going to fight. I'm going to have all kinds of arguments and then tame me. Tame me into trusting your love. It's a big challenge and a big uh, um, uh, a long road to uh, walk. Now, this next text, uh, Mark 8.34 particularly, is the classical text in the Gospel of Mark regarding discipleship. And I have mentioned that in different settings, so I'm going to go very quickly over this second text simply to say, besides the seed that cracks open, death-like cracks open, Jesus here speaks about the, 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 the severity of what needs to happen in our lives for us to be able to follow Christ. For the goal of this simple sentence here is one of ongoing discipleship with Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him follow me. Both of these verbs are to walk along with Christ. So the sandwich of this little sentence in 34 is walk with me. But there is a, a, there's a very severe cost 
that has to be paid for that walking with Christ to be fruit-bearing and growing, and that is to deny yourself and to take up your cross. I have added here daily, I praise God for Luke, who has added this uh, as something that Jesus spoke about. I think it's already in the Gospel of Mark, but I'm glad for the explicit word daily so that we wouldn't think that this text calls us primarily and initially to martyrdom because we might think that, deny yourself and take up your cross. Once we might be able to misread that or misapply that sentence, but daily something else must be meant here. And so uh, one of our wonderful graduates um, wrote a thesis on this verse. Uh, You may wonder whether you can write 60 or 70 pages on Mark 8.34, but she did. And she did a beautiful job, and this is how she defined denying yourself. I think she had good reason. She did all kinds of uh, analysis. To deny yourself is to exchange your primary loyalty to yourself for your primary loyalty to Christ. And do you see here the echo to this default mode that I confess to you about myself? That is the fundamental question. Are you loyal to yourself in your instincts, in your autonomy, in your reaction, especially when things get difficult? Or are you willing to say, my loyalty, my primary loyalty is with Christ. And in consequence, I will not deny him. It's a very curious thing that Jesus said, Peter, you deny yourself. And the same word is used for Peter denying Christ later. So it's, it's the exact contrary that Peter does. And the reinstitution of Peter uh, in the Gospel of John is a beautiful, merciful uh, kindness that when you and I fail, when we uh, maintain our loyalty to ourselves and do not surrender uh, to the primary loyalty to Christ, that he comes back to us and says, uh, do you love me? So uh, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. And then if we could have the next picture. Uh, Let him take up his patibulum. That sounds a lot like Latin, and it is. It is the horizontal crossbar. Often the crucifixions that the Romans uh, executed uh, meant that the accused criminal had to carry the horizontal bar to the place of crucifixion in which the uh, vertical bar was already set into the ground, and you were basically lifted on top of the horizontal bar uh, with the, uh, on the vertical bar with the horizontal bar that you took to the cross. So in the Greco-Roman world, uh, thousands of people were crucified this way. And when Jesus says, carry your cross, especially daily, he speaks of a framework of a mindset in which you do not own your life. You remember as you carry this patibulum that your life has been given back to you because of the atonement of Christ. And you are, you are walking down, you're being accused, you're being shamed, you're being ridiculed, but you have peace with God. 
You carry your pati balloon. You carry that bar as a remembrance of what my life could have been like. There's a new movie out uh, called Sully. Uh, I, I am still fascinated by the way that uh, Sully landed this uh, plane in the Hudson River. Um, and uh, in his uh, interview, he says, uh, we all got a, a second lease on life including himself as a pilot. They could have all died uh, within those few seconds of uh, ditching on the Hudson River. And in some ways, that's our life. We don't own it. When we came in this morning, we did not own our lives. Those of us who confess Christ have a second lease on life. And we have been bought at a price, Paul later will say. So it's a reorientation in how we look at our professions, at our relationships. But I don't want to make light of it. It's a powerful struggle. And I was really touched by the testimony of, was it Anna last time? The testimony of about work. Oh, Hannah. Hannah. I was touched by her testimony and by the sharing in the congregation a few weeks ago. There's a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty, a lot of challenge in our fellowship. And I would like to encourage us to take that challenge into what we're reading, that they are not different Our challenges are not way there and then there's this sanitized life of following Christ, but Christ sees, Christ knows. He sees our struggles. And I don't know about you, but I am learning one thing, to welcome the insurmountable challenges that I face in my life. As perhaps yet the hand of God to bring me to a place of life. But you have to decide that for yourself. It is not an unhealthy uh, path towards surrender, but it is something that Jesus taught his disciples so that they would be healthy and live. If you wouldn't mind going to the next text, uh, this is the yoke metaphor. I've mentioned that, I think, according to my calendar last November, after we got back from um, sabbatical, I mentioned this uh, uh, parallel to the call to discipleship of denying yourself and of carrying the patibulum. Here is also in, in Matthew a teaching of Jesus uh, where he calls us to shoulder his yoke. This is a very well-known text. We read it to be comforted, and I think we do well. But I think we should read it also to be instructed of how life will go after this seed cracks open, after we take the patibulum. Now what? How do we go through the maze of our professions, the maze of what's going on in our society, the maze of our psyche, the maze of our relationships? And here Jesus says, come to me, bring the maze. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For a long time I've thought more about 
What yoke does, have, does Jesus have Jesus' name on it? And I think now it's different. God has placed a yoke on each one of us. And that yoke is either to carry weight or to pull weight. You, you, you decide. I think it's a slave yoke that Jesus is referring to. But because he's a good master, he will not suppress you. Because he's a good master, he will lead towards fruit bearing. He wants you to follow him, not to be annihilated or to be made into nothing. And so here, this yoke is placed on my shoulders. And then you need to ask, is what hangs on this yoke, is what I'm pulling with this yoke, placed by God or placed by my inability to say no? By my sense that if I do more than I should, I will be well received. All kinds of ill things, why we would do things. Or do I not really feel any weight because I, I throw my yoke off all the time. I'm like one of those donkeys that you cannot saddle. So you need to decide for yourself what... Uh, does this mean? I also think that sometimes we carry weight in our life that we have not chosen, but it's there. But maybe Christ will teach us how to carry that weight. In what way? I pray a lot for God's perspective. How, to, how am I supposed to see things? And you know yourself, if you ever go up in an airplane, the perspective on St. Louis is very different from up there than right here. The cars are like little ants, your little house is like a little dot, and so all your little things that you do all every day is kind of shrinking, and you kind of wonder, what, what is God's perspective? So I would say there are many aspects associated with this yoke. Now, uh, the next slide will give you a rather free rendering of this text. And maybe it helps you to come to Christ with what burdens you, with what wears you at this point. And so uh, I'm just going to uh, make a few comments. Be characterized as those who come to me weary and struggling. It's ongoing weariness that Jesus speaks about. And those who have endured under being under much burden. I think you can bring everything into that that you can name from your ancestry, your, your DNA, your, your, your burdens from heritage, the influence of your parents, all the way to today's problems, this morning. All of it. Bring that to me because I am here to recover you, to restore you from being all autos by yourself, all alone by yourself, in hundreds of different ways. So bring it, bring it to me. And I will give you refreshing rest. This is a promise, but it's also an encouragement. 
And obviously this refreshing rest has much. There's much in the New Testament that speaks about that. Be characterized by taking up and caring, perhaps accepting the slave yoke that is my possession. So it's not uh, take up your miserable little whatever you want to place on your shoulders. No, it is placed on you by somebody who knows where the rub might be. And he will take it off because he sees on your shoulders the rub and he will take some wood off so that it will be a custom-made yoke for you. But it's there for the purpose of instruction, of training. Because Jesus' right says, learn from me, be characterized as learners. So here we have the, the uh, um, uh, disciple you know, the word disciple is, is kind of in here. Uh, learn from me, be characterized by those. Uh, and how do we learn in Christ? By following and going through life and picking up his cues, including his teaching this morning. Now comes a little inclusio or a little bracket. In case you sh- shrink back, from saying, wow, slave yoke, that doesn't sound very endearing. That doesn't sound like I can relax. If I were a donkey, I would tense up. My ears would be all alert. I would be very ready to fight. Because I'm humbly gentle, I believe that Jesus will always be humbly gentle. When he came first and when he comes to judgment, he will be humbly gentle. And you will find refreshing rest for your souls. In case you haven't heard it yet, I bring you rest and refreshment. For my yoke is useful and morally good. It helps you to grow in a certain direction. And my burden or my load is not heavy in weight. And so Jesus is calling us here to come into a situation where we cannot move to the left or the right, where we can't wiggle, where we can't rationalize, where we can't walk out and say, I didn't see this, but where we are in the tough place and then we trust that he is humbly good and he sees us and guides us into health through this crucible of having to let go. So the last picture that I wanted to show you briefly is a double yoke. Perhaps that's what it is. Perhaps Jesus is right next to us because he's identified as the servant of Yahweh, the suffering servant of God. The one who has given his life, the one who has gone under the yoke before us, the one who has carried a drunk from the cup. And so um, uh, I want to encourage you in the struggles that you find yourselves in this day, in this situation of life, in this season of life that you're in, to begin to believe that perhaps God sees your trials. Perhaps he sees and perhaps he gives instruction that are not salt on a wound, which it might sound initially, but they're actually on to life, 
onto fruit, onto goodness, onto becoming recipients of his love in the midst of the crucibles that we stand in. So may God encourage you and um, uh, uplift you as uh, we seek to follow him.